Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I am I am actually pretty good, Dave. I'm not bad, given the situation. Um, I feel fortunate. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. We're all good. I would have to think that's the same case as you. Yes. Is that, yes. that, is, that is the case. Things are largely... Good. Um, you know, nobody is, um, you know, got any, you know, significant issues right now. So that's grand. We're happy right. here. And we hope it's right. all the same for you out there. Yes. So from that standpoint, of course, you you can empathize and care about what's going on in your country right now on a lot of different things, especially COVID-19. Right. But you just have to feel fortunate. Because there are a lot of people out there that are currently suffering. So, yeah. So, but our job here, Dave, is to talk about those suffering UCLA fans. Ooh. That was good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, wow. One thing that's very interesting to me, and it's so funny, I haven't written the story yet, and it's literally a two-paragraph story. And and it might have I, – I put it on the forum – but it might have just gone right by. Uh, with the NBA saying it was a, a setting a deadline of August, August second or August third, uh, for um, players that have submitted their name to the NBA draft having to withdraw by I think it's August second. Um, and the most interesting part, and the draft is going to be in October. But the most interesting part is they might have a combine. And if they have a combine, it has to, you have to, they don't know when it is, but you have to withdraw two weeks before the combine or August 2nd or whatever comes first. And the plan, the loose plan from what we're hearing is it's going to be in August. So August 2nd is, is first. So more than likely, Chris Smith, if he wants to return to UCLA, will not be able to compete in that NBA combine. Um, of course, he'll probably wait to see when the exact date is for the combine. Maybe it's in, maybe it's in July. Who knows? But right now, the rumor is August 2nd, and that presents a – if they do set the – combine in august that presents a bit of a decision for him um one other thing before you comment just throwing this out um how many people have really used the combine to play themselves into a first round draft choice it can't be many i I know i know a lot of people have used it to move their draft stock up right but I don't know many who have gone from second round to first round. I mean, I'm sure there have been isolated instances, but one name that comes to mind is Russell Westbrook. I remember he played himself into the top five um, with, I think it was a great combine showing. Um, I, I think he was already even projected as a first round pick. Yeah, and he right? was, yeah, I think yeah. he was already going to be a lottery guy. It was just, oh my God, this guy's explosive as hell. Let's let's draft him even earlier. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can go from... Because from what I'm seeing, Chris Smith is still like fringe of the second round. Um, going from that to first rounder seems tough. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't happen. That's kind of uh, uh, most, from what I know, most NBA 
scouts, people who are making these decisions, have already really gotten a good grasp of who they might draft by all the tape that they've seen from their college careers. And it can improve a little by seeing them. You see them in person. Maybe they're a little tougher physically than you thought they were. But it's not a dramatically different guy that you're going to see. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. So it'll be very interesting if Chris, I think right now I kind of understood if Chris Smith were going before, if he were going to make the decision to stay in the NBA draft. But given this development, it seems like there is enough uh, evidence, enough data for him to support him returning turning now if there weren't already yeah so i find that all really really interesting but you always have to keep in mind he has an agent the agent's in his ear the agent's saying you can play yourself into the first round and chris smith might not have you know (laughs) the basis of knowing nba combine history to understand that that's almost an impossibility so there are other influences happening but you would think that maybe there would be some ucla sources that might try to give him some information but he's probably you know he's probably getting a lot of misinformation too yeah and it's tough to filter out um i think for him also there's there's and i don't know what his schedule has been like the last few months but is he gonna have some rust to shake off too um you know, I don't know how much of a lockdown he was under. I he was still attending UCLA, as far as we know, right? He was. So yeah, he was yeah. so I, I I don't know how much he's been able to keep up with his workouts. To what extent he's been able to do that, um, but that's another factor in this. Um, it's not the ideal lead up to the combine either. Um, you haven't he hasn't been able to devote himself to it probably fully. So I, I think there's a lot of factors here that make sense for him to return, especially with. Sports still at this moment appearing like they're on track to be more or less a full go this fall. Um, right. So we'll see on that. But um, it certainly looks more, I think, optimistic for a basketball season now than it did three months ago um, in at the college level. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot there's a lot of logical reason for Christmas to return, not least of which is that same argument that we were making even before all this stuff happened. Um, his, the, the way this senior season could go for him could really elevate him. Like he could really go and be a solid first rounder next year. Um, and potentially higher. I mean, if he shows off his, you know, improved three point shot, um, improved decision-making a little bit better, just kind of focus and attention to detail at all times. I mean, guys that look like him who have that level of skill don't come around too often. He's got to tighten up his handle and shoot a little bit more, but um, he has the potential to be really good and potential to be a a lock first rounder at the very least. So um, I think there's a lot of really good reason for him to return. I think his biggest opportunity to play himself into the first round is something he'll never get back. And that was probably the PAC 12 tournament and the NCAA tournament. And that's gone. So the second best opportunity is to return and play your senior season. Yeah. So it will, it, I, you know, we're in, we're in, you know, about halfway through June, maybe a bit. I, I don't, I wouldn't say he's going to make a decision soon because he's got until, you know, the beginning of August, but 
I would think there might be some movement on that happening fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, the other thing in development in recruiting, UCLA offered Nolan Hickman. He did it right. We heard that right when we were doing the broadcast last week. Um, little bit excited about that just because I, I think Nolan Hickman is a really good prospect. It's about 6'1". It's pretty long. Uh, isn't a guy who you could see going to the NBA? I mean, he's a three, four-year guy. Uh, solid kid, good grades. Um, yeah, there aren't too many Seattle kids that don't go to Washington. Um, but I've heard some things that he grew up kind of like, you know, really liking UCLA. So I, they might actually have a chance with Nolan Hickman. Uh, so that that's, you know, it's hard to know really what's going on in basketball recruiting um, because there have been no evaluation periods, obviously. But um, that was a good development that they offered offered him since there aren't too many West Coast point guards. And as I said, recruiting is kind of not what it should be. So there aren't a lot of offers. You, it's very difficult for coaches to offer someone if they haven't seen them. Um, and this, I think, was an exception. I, I don't think UCLA had seen uh, Hickman. So that was a good development. Yeah, um, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, another element that's kind of layered in here is with the Dacian Knicks experience um, of a guy leaving for the G League, essentially, um, how that is going layered into having to do nothing but video evaluations and everything who you target, how many guys you target, like that sort of thing. I, I wonder how much that's going to be adjusted um, going forward as well. Um, it's a, yeah. It is a whole new world in a lot of ways. I don't envy uh, Cronin in this. Well, I envy them in a lot of ways because making a bunch of money is great, but um, <laughs> I, I don't envy their uh, the task of, of this summer having to do all of this in kind of a, uh, a changing recruiting environment, but also just you know the state of play is a little bit different than it was last recruiting cycle as well. I, I can't see them like what you brought up. You have to start considering uh, the G League now, and I think it's it's really difficult to re not recruit someone because he might be taken. He might be in that little area where he's good enough to go into the G League. That's just so difficult to say. It's baseball recruiting every year. Yeah, yeah, but I know when. The whole one and done thing happened. Everyone talked about, well, you know, a lot of programs will just adjust and and project a guy who's going to be one and done and not take them and not recruit them. And that's never happened. <laughs> yeah. If a kid is one and done was legitimately interested in your school, you recruited him. So I can't see this happening either. And most of it is because college coaches see a really talented kid who potentially, you know, is talented enough to go to the G League and they just get greedy. They start envisioning that kid playing for them, <laughs> and they can't help themselves. So, yeah. but still, I think I think basketball recruiting is still in good shape. Uh, still waking, waiting on McCure Maker. See what's going to happen with him. Uh, the most recent thing is uh, I, while they put in for a waiver for him to be qual uh, to get through the NCAA uh, clearinghouse and get qualified without having graduated in eight semesters, I think they're still trying to sort through his, his 
his various transcripts, um, especially with the homeschooling. I don't even know where that is right now, whether they've actually, you know, put in for the clearinghouse with all the homeschooling or if they need more paperwork or whatever that is and, and where that is. So that's going to be very interesting. That could, I, I would have to think that might get, we might see something within the next month on that. Very exciting. Going to be an interesting <laughs> summer. Um, speaking of interesting summers, is that good? I don't know if that's good. That was just uh, kind of a, that was kind of a lame segue. Uh, we've got some information. You wrote a story about Pac-12 uh, return dates. You'd kind of compiled the different news and notes from around the conference, and it seems to be mostly a mishmash but uh, i would say most schools planning to have some start of like voluntary stuff this month and then getting into um the warm-ups uh in the lead-up to fall camp um were there any outliers that you identified that were peculiar to you not necessarily peculiar but interesting that two new coaches didn't get in any new practices in spring yeah that's tough that's so, i mean that's so tough. The first time you get on a field is going to be your fall camp with your new coach looking at. And I mean, that's well, Carl's, Carl's offense is famously <laughs> easy to install. So I don't see a problem there. Just, yeah, there's, there's a lot of problems. I think there's, that's, I think that's a huge point, a huge point, And that might go a long way to keeping, delimiting Colorado and Washington state this upcoming season um it it sounds like everyone's a little kind of basically on the same page because the date is june 15th when when they all can come back and then there's that two-week ramp up of uh required activity which is walkthroughs weightlifting team meetings two weeks before actual practice starts so the difference is going to be and if you read that story, you realize that we all don't have details and I don't even have details from UCLA because there aren't details to have yet about how programs are going to test. What's the quarantine situation? Um, I've got a general kind of feel from it. Um, and I kind of use, use that to write that other story where I said that it's not going to be about the testing, it's going to be about the deaths. And that's going to be the only thing that could potentially, you know, three or four games in somewhere in the season where the NCAA decides to shut it down if there are actual deaths. And I mean, maybe I'm a little, maybe I'm a little cynical about it. I, I, I just, I, the way this train is going, Dave, I, I cannot see what it would take to shut down the season except for something really extreme it would only um, i think honestly i don't know if the ncaa i think we made this point last time but just to reiterate yeah, i don't think the ncaa sure. will be making the call i think it's going to be state governments again so if so right now if you're looking at all the data and this is i'm not taking a stand on it just saying california and arizona are both um spiking um in terms of cases right now um deaths have not caught up with that will remains to be seen if they will um, but they're both spiking. Um, and if they spike up enough with everything opening up in both those states, um, 
it's going to be interesting to see if there's any political will, any public will to get back into lockdown. Um, because that's the only thing that really slowed it down the first time. Um, and if that happens, well, schools aren't going to be playing football in those states um, because they'll just they'll be in lockdown. Um, and so I don't think there'll that's be special where dispensations for it. Right. But this is what I'm saying. I don't think they'll ever back that out and go back into lockdown. I don't see it happening. And I think college football will keep playing and they'll manage the tests. However many test positive, they'll say they're quarantining those and they won't play for a week. They won't play for two weeks, whatever. You know, if you tested positive, you're out for however long. If you were around someone that tested positive, you're out for a different and they'll manage it that way. But I, I tend to disagree a little. I think that, and that's the cynicism. I just think it's going to take college football, uh, some college football players dying before it gets shut down. And I believe that about. I don't. I don't know if that does it. In Los Angeles. I honestly don't know if it does it. Like it, it would have to. I, I don't. Know, I don't even want to get into like what specifics would have to happen. But I don't think like one person dying is going to do it. Oh no, I don't say one. I'm not yeah. going to put a number on it, but it's not one. Yeah, it's. We, we're through the looking glass. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's all very, um, it's, it's going to be a really, really interesting, uh, next few months. And I don't mean that that could take that good or bad, but it's going to be interesting. Um, what goes down, um, with everything in the lead up to fall camp through fall camp and into the season with, you know, the coronavirus in the background. Right. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> More um, like in the backfield. Sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good. UCLA got a commitment from uh, a running back from Alabama, uh, Dacian Morrell. Interesting, great, interesting story. And whether this kid is good enough to become UCLA starter or not, yeah, of course we'd want him to. But when you're covering recruiting, this is the kind of guy you just you love to kind of cover. I mean, the guy's out there on a farm in Alabama lifting hay. I mean, come on. He's a wonderful story. If you watched his commitment video, you know, he's a uh, single family, I think it was, a uh, single parent family. Um, just a... Uh, you want stories in covering recruiting that make people interesting. And he's definitely an interesting story. Um, if he does prove to be potentially as good as he might be, the problem will be UCLA hanging on to him. Um, not just, uh, not just with new schools getting involved, um, but with the schools that have offered him actually having him on campus and showing him more attention so I, I think it's it's going to continue to be a very interesting story. Um, when I first talked to him, he sounded very enthusiastic about about UCLA, even though he had had offers from other Power Five schools. Um, he just told me how much he admired UCLA and how much it meant to him, and it just wasn't lip service. I, I think it was real uh, for him. So. An interesting story, that kid from a small town, I think it's 2,000 people in Alabama, and he's going to come to Los Angeles, and he's a devout Christian. 
when I was first talking to him, he, I said, so why are you so interested in UCLA and LA? He said, well, said all these other things. And I think I quoted him where he said something like, and I want to further pursue uh, and develop myself as a Christian father, husband. And I said, you're coming to the right place. There's so many sinners out here in LA. And he laughed. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. yeah, I watched I watched this film. I think he's, you know, I think he potentially could be really good. Yeah. Um, you know, it seems to have pretty good vision from what I can tell. Um, apparently ran a four, three. Is that what, is that what, is that what I'm seeing here, Tracy? That's what, that's what that video says. I mean, you can't trust any of that. I'll just say that. I would but say, for, I would say his highlight value. Yeah. His highlight so, film speed wasn't the thing that jumped out to me. It was more his it. vision and his like kind of short area quickness. Um, yeah. but looks good. I mean, in vision and short area quickness. Well, I wouldn't have said speed was the thing that jumped out to me about Joshua Kelly either. So you right. can make a lot of money on, on vision and short area quickness. So I think he looks like a, he looks like a take to me. Yeah, absolutely. Especially given UCLA's running back recruiting where they missed on all running backs last year. And they have a stable of eight guys, four guys who are going to be sophomores or younger. And they still are looking around for a potential starter. They've got a lot of the scat back type of guys. Those, yeah. those you know, kind of smaller guys who, you know, Demetric Felton, Keegan Jones kind of guys. Casimir uh, Allen. So, yeah, he was an absolute take. Yeah. Um, but that's done with all the booms. There are no outstanding booms. No booms outstanding. No... <laughs> No hanging booms. No silent so, booms. I should really be telling... No muffled uh, booms. I should really be telling the listeners that there are like five that I know of, right? Yeah, I think you should. Okay, there are five... No, there, no. there aren't any others. There, no. there are no more muffled uh, booms. But they did. They did offer their first JC prospect of the 2021 cycle as uh, Daniel Robledo. Uh, that big defensive lineman who I, you know, uh, you, this is UCLA's recruiting class. It's it's a bunch of three-star solid guys. There's one four-star uh, prospect on the list, and that's um, uh, Devin Kirkwood. But it's so far, it's solid three-star guys, and everyone on the forum is saying, you know, I'm really kind of satisfied. And I said, yeah, solid three-star, but they – you, you don't win at, like, the Pac-12 conference level, which is solid, mostly solid three stars. You need, you need stars. You need guys who are going to be stars on the college level. Especially, if you, have, especially if you have a bad defensive scheme and an average offensive one. Which we're going to get to soon. But actually, in watching tape, I've never seen Daniel Robledo in person. Given the tape where I – just judging on pure evaluation of the tape, that's a guy who, who could be, who's a three-star plus. Let's put it that way. Um, I liked his tape a lot. Um, and very interesting that they offered, they offered a defensive lineman. Uh, then it's Johnny Nansen, who's uh, a very effective recruiter. He was with USC. Uh, Robledo has some Polynesian blood, so there's that connection. Uh, so there you go. Um, but you did just touch on our next, what we wanted to talk about next, because I'm writing another key to the season story. So I've been doing a lot of research 
we've written various key to the season stories, uh, both of us, and they've mostly been, you know, find some answers at tight end. Dorian Thompson Robinson cutting down on the turnovers. Maybe some Generally, explosive plays, guys. More, yeah. Even finding a pass rush. But overall, I think this is going to be the most important one. And that's the defense has just got to get better. <laughs> I mean, it ha- you no matter how much better the offense gets, let's say leapier better, so much better, right? It's good that it's going, you're not getting a successful season without this defense getting quite a bit better than we've seen in the last two years under Chip Kelly. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think we're more or less in agreement that the offense is going to be once again, whatever, like it might be worse slightly because Joshua Kelly's not there. Um, but it's going to be somewhere in the middling section of, you know, any kind of rating system, maybe on the low end of middling, but the defense the last two years has been bad, has been in the bad section. Um, and even just getting to average with this schedule is probably enough to get them to a bowl game. Like if the defense can just be like a top 60 unit, that's probably enough for a bowl game. Um, and I personally have no idea if it's going to get there because I've seen absolutely no sign that they're even close the last two years. Right. There's a big plane just landing in your house. Yeah, there's a um, there's an Air Force base just next uh, to, and they uh, they run a lot of operations. Looked really. Co- it sounded really. Yeah. Pretty. Cool. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah. In uh, <laughs> opponent yards per play, 115th in the country last year. Uh, unless this improves, it's got to get down. What do you consider average? Like sixty? Yeah, fifty. Yeah, they're 60? gonna they're gonna need to get into the top sixty or seventy. Um, if they don't, they're gonna be uh, they're not gonna make a bowl game again because I don't see the offense. I don't think the offense is gonna be a lot better next year without Josh Kelly. I think that's probably the. I, I would say there's like a hard limit of you know maybe slightly better than last year, but they're not gonna be a lot better. Um, so without that, the defense is going to have to be the area of improvement. Um, and there's there's some reason for optimism, um, but replacing basically every linebacker isn't one of them. Um, and I, I think you can safely say, if we're just judging on pure talent alone, you could make a case that, so I'm, I'm judging on talent and experience of talent. So let's just go through it. The, the defensive line should be better. Everyone returns. Um, so they should get a l- better because of experience linebackers. You've got to just objectively say they're, they will probably not be as good. There might be a little bit more talent, but they lack, there's so much lacking of experience. You can't lose effectively four senior starters and then be better like that. Right. Just, it's, that's hard to do that. Right. And then the secondary Wow. I mean, just from a pure personnel talent standpoint, you can't necessarily say that they're going to be better. You lose Darnay Holmes, Car- uh, uh, Quentin Lake comes back, he'll be healthier. They'll all be a little, a year older and better. Yeah, let's say Will that's they, a wa- They'll all be older, but we just saw what happened to a bunch of these guys year to year under Chip Kelly from 2018 that's, to 2019. Right. That was mostly coaching and i'm just talking if you put a kid on a field 
Yeah. If he's more, is he better because he has more experience? Let's just say that's a wash at the secondary. Overall, then, it's probably talent-wise, and I think I'm being really, really forgiving. Let's say it's a wash. There's as much talent yeah. this year as there was last year. So the way they're going to get better is through improved coaching and an improved scheme. And that's why Brian Norwood, the new secondary coach, and let's just face it, he's the co-defensive coordinator. That 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 was on his title. Uh, Tracy, he Twitter. is the he is the passing game coordinator, and I will not have you cast aspersions on his title. It, he was co-defensive coordinator for like three days on his on his Twitter account. Well, yeah, so, no, I mean, that's that's what he's doing. Um, yeah, and and that's what he did at Navy. I mean, they brought him in along with uh, he was co-defensive coordinator with Brian Newberry, and they ran. This fantastic defense for Navy turned them around, went from, I don't know, in 2018, they had one of the worst records in college football. It was like, I think it was three and 10. And then last year, I think it was a 10 or 11 win season. So, and it was basically, it was based on their defense. And uh, Norwood gets a lot of credit in tandem with Newberry, but it was, it was a different, it was really a different it's going to be a different defense, and we, we saw a hint of it as much as we could see a hint of it without them playing in pads in, in only three days of practice when they're mostly going through individual drills. But you could see what it, that it was going to be pretty much the Navy defense is, is how it looked to me. And that's a 4-2-5 with, you know, Three, four principles is how they've always liked to call it. Uh, even the players, when they were interviewing them, they were saying that. A four, two, five with three, four base principles. Um, and it's based on mostly deception. I mean, that's what it is. It's an aggressive defense. It tries to get pressure at the quarterback. And it's it's uses deception. You know, on the field, the field corner will will blitz they'll set, show this and they'll move this guy here and pressure will come from there and so conceptually it's a good defense and it worked at navy but this has to take this has to be the impetus for taking ucla from 115 in the country in defense to let's say conservatively 55 yeah and that that's a big ask is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I think, you know, there have been instances of something similar happening in the past, um, but I think it's always usually coupled with the defense aging up a little bit, too. But one famous one from UCLA was when Dwayne Walker was hired in 2006 after Larry Kerr's final year um, as the worst defensive coordinator um, probably in America in 2005. Uh, Dwayne Walker came in with much the same personnel, not entirely, there were some injuries in 2004 and, and 2005, I mean, that, that derailed that a little bit, but um, turned that defense completely around with mostly just a scheme change. Um, could we see that, especially with much of the staff still being there? I mean, Azanaro is still there. Um, Chip Kelly is still, you know, there. And I, I think probably providing some sort of level of guidance on what he wants defensively. Um, I don't know. Um, I think the talent is there to have a turnaround. I think even the linebackers that are, um, you know, it's going to be an inexperienced unit. There's talent there if it's coached well. Um, there's talent in the secondary if it's coached well. 
and certainly there's talent on the defensive line if they're put in positions to succeed. And if if Norwood's the guy, I, there's potential for a top 60 defense. There really is. Um, but it's going to be only if um, Norwood's the guy and uh, he can actually, you know, have more or less free reign to get this thing moving. Yeah, that you just kind of hit what I, the point I was going to make and you came right around to it. How much does Brian Norwood have control of this defense with Jerry as an arrow there? Um, it's that's going to be a really interesting question. Uh, you know, one of the biggest questions we'll have to ask when we get into the season is who's calling the plays or even before, like who is going to call the defensive plays? Um, I would have to think Chip will say Jerry as an arrow because he's not going to, you know, throw his friend under the bus. Uh, so I, I, I think that they will still give credit because the titles are there too, to Jerry as an arrow for being the defensive coordinator. But from what I've heard, make no mistake, Brian Norwood is brought in to, to install that Navy defense that was so effective and turned around that program. Um, and, that's what he's tasked to do here. And I would be stunned if he's not calling the plays. You don't come in and you bring your concept and your scheme and let someone else call the plays. No. Yeah. So that'll be yet another interesting thing to watch um, in the coming months. And also I, one other thing just to kind of throw out there, um, UCLA is somewhat changing schemes defensively. Um, I got to think it's advantage continuity this year um, for the teams that have been able to maintain an offense and maintain a defense um, year over year, simply because there's going to be less on field time to install. Um, And there's going to be weird stuff. Like if guys do come down with the Rona, um, they're going to be out of practice for a while. And if it's numbers, they're going to be out of practice for, you know, it could be bunches of people out of practice for a while. So it doesn't behoove you to change a whole lot this year because um, there's been off-season limitations in what can actually happen. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not going from a, you know, the the base defense is similar. Uh, the The main position change is they've created that star position that a lot of defenses, college defenses, use, which is, you know, a hybrid safety linebacker and if you get a really good player in that position then you are able to match up with all different kinds of offenses because you're basically you're in a nickel defense at all times if that safety is is able to cover people but also play like a linebacker so that's kind of what they did you know when they went to their nickel in the last two years so it is, it is kind of their nickel from the last two years, let's, let's put it that way. Um, the other real personnel kind of change, you know, it used to be that 3-4 and you would get a nose, nose tackle, which was, you know, 6'3", 325 pounds. And then ideally the defensive ends were 6'5", and by the time they were playing, 275 pounds, um, you know, and of course, they were all potential pros because 
when you're a really good player and you're a nose guard and you're 6'3 and 325 pounds, you're a pro. And when you're a defensive end and you're 6'5 and 280 pounds and you're good, you're a pro. Um, the problem is when they started to recruit for those positions, they just couldn't find enough guys like that. Um, they found out that most of the defensive linemen that they were recruiting were 6'3 and 275 and 280 pounds and like three techniques. So they adapted and this defense is, is more about that it in a three, four, usually that nose guard. That's why he's called a nose guard. He's literally a zero technique. He's right on the head of the center and the other two defensive end are four techniques right on the tackles. From what we saw towards the end of last season, they were moving everyone around. They were in gaps. They'd be standing up. And that's kind of, that's what Norwood did. Well, I can't just say Norwood. That's what Navy did last year. So it, there isn't that – it's not that big of a stretch from what they were doing towards the second half of last season defensively. Um, that star position is new. Uh, and if you have the guy – if you have a guy who can play that position, that is a huge advantage because you can match up. You don't have to, you don't have to go from your base to your nickel. You, you can match up with your nickel. Um, it is susceptible though to power running teams, but on the other hand, there just aren't very many power running teams left in college football. The one that was in the PAC 12 Stanford is now no longer a power running team. They've gone to a spread mostly. Yep. Um, which I want to talk about that. Why? <laughs> they couldn't you, run the ball. I know, but uh, they couldn't. I mean, they I tried. They tried to establish it for days and weeks, and the last couple of years, they just haven't been able to run the ball because I think, uh, I think offensive line has not had the development it used to have. Um, That's it exactly. They don't have the talent there either. Yeah. That they used. Yeah. But also, um, I think the scheme has maybe gotten stale. I don't think they've. I don't think they've continued to innovate on what they're doing. Um, they kept trying to do the same, same, same. And I think I know I, I I rail against it quite a bit. David Shaw is a horrific red zone play caller, and I think he <laughs> he he makes it worse um, because he tries to do um, you know a, a lot of. N- creative and wrong ways stuff in the red zone, um, which makes that offense just grind to a halt and then makes them behind the chains and then they're behind in points. And it's just, it's a dovetailing nonsense thing that ends up happening. But um, end result is they just could not run the ball. Um, So, and and they had it, they had it rolling. What they were doing is, is going out across the country and finding, you know, potential NFL offensive linemen who were that talented and they found enough who could get into Stanford and were interested and they did it for years for, I mean, you could say a decade, they'd go out and find those kind of offensive linemen and then they'd get, you know, either an incredibly talented running back or a good one. And that worked. And I, I just college defenses could not match up against it. Almost no one could really match up against that offense when you have that kind of talent. Jim Morris saw that and said, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and 
and then he couldn't recruit like that at all. No. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting to me if David Shaw does, if he's like on the downside of his career there at Stanford and, and I tend to think he is. And I, it's going, I think it's going to come down to, he, he just couldn't recruit at the same level that he was. And I don't know why, you know, we, we should talk to our publisher on the Stanford site, RJ, to ask him why. I think <laughs> what is what has happened to their recruiting because they had it rolling. Honestly, the I think it's they've had a whack-a-mole with recruiting, and it's kind of what you have to do somewhat to at Stanford. They've still recruited well. Like if you go look at the numbers, they've recruited well. The issue is, I think they went like two or three cycles where they got like maybe a combined three defensive linemen total. So the yeah. defensive line went from that early Stanford era, like Henry Anderson, those dudes, Trent Murphy, to, you know, maybe one good guy and then a couple of placeholders every year. Um, like even the Solomon Thomas years, it was basically Solomon Thomas and then not much else um, and no depth. Um, so the defense, the defense was in this kind of issue where it was never at that elite level again. Um, it was always goodish, but it hasn't been elite in like four years. So that's one thing. On the other side, the offense was still good. Um, 2015's Stanford offense was maybe the best it's been, um, but it was still really good. Um, but then they, they, I think with the offensive line, it's been more of a development, um, player development issue than necessarily a recruiting issue. Like it's not too long past that they got the two best tackles in the country. Um, Walker Little and Foster uh, Sorrell. Um, and then it just hasn't translated. Um, See, I, I agree. I agree. And I don't necessarily call it development. Just when, you, when you're recruiting guys, four and five star guys, there are just going to be some natural misses. It's not necessarily even development. It's just, wow, those guys didn't end up being as good as they should have been having seen them in, in high school. And that's, I think they were on an incredible roll of getting guys who did live up to their hype. And lately they, the guys that they did recruit haven't lived up to it. I mean, whether you call it development or not, I, I maybe, I don't know, but well, a, yeah. big, a big reason I bring up development is that they did lose their sports performance coach. Um, I think soon before, soon after the 2018 season, which is when the wheels started to come off. Um, mm. And I think he'd been a long time guy there. Um, it was his 12th season, Shannon Turley. Um, so where'd he go? He was, he left under unclear circumstances. Um, so he may have been fired. Um, I don't think there's any real report on it anymore. It's the, the one thing they said at the time was he no longer works at Stanford. Um, wow. so I don't know, but I, I think there's been a lack of, um, yeah, I'll call it development. Um, okay. But uh, I think that's a big part of it. And then scheme. Um, but honestly, I don't think recruiting is it. I, I think recruiting has been, you know, they've missed on some key positions in certain years. But it's mainly like something's going wrong with getting those guys from highly rated to playable on the field. And it could be a lot of it the scheme. Like it just way too predictable. You You just know too much too soon about what they're going to be doing. Cause the one thing about Harbaugh is I, I don't remember it being this predictable um, when he was at Stanford. Um, I know there was that famous um, UCLA game where he basically ran the same running play the entire time. Cause UCLA couldn't stop it. But I remember a lot of shifts and motions, a lot of 
you know, interesting stuff to disguise. And I just, I don't know. Um, it's, it's easy to predict what Stanford is going to do on a certain play. Right. Hey, I want to ask you a really personal question. Sure. Are you in kind of your, uh, annual time where you're feeling optimistic about the UCLA football season? Would you say? No. And you're you're not because your opponent primers have been kind of optimistic. I mean, the first, the first six games are really soft. I mean, ASU is the one like tough opponent, but they, they, if this team is like, even what we've been talking about, like an average offense and an average defense, I mean, they should be like four and two after the first six. Right. Um, but they, they might very well not be. The um, other element that you always bring up is, for whatever reason, Chip Kelly out of the gate in two seasons just can't put it together. It's still, it's still like a, he's still workshopping or something. Yeah. So no matter – and we made that mistake the second year thinking – and we had, we had enough – we had some evidence. They finished the first year strong at the end. That was a good finish to that first season. So we thought they'd come back strong to begin the second season and they didn't um we'll see if that pattern continues and and i'm saying underachieving compared to the opponents they were playing too i mean so dave just throw that little element in there and you you still think no no no. i don't think they're going four and two Um, okay then tell me what let's just let's not do the okay four and those so through the first six games yeah, they're gonna lose to um, San Diego State. They're going to lose to Hawaii, and they're gonna lose to ASU. Um, I think three and three. Okay, I think in your San Diego State thing, you were did I read that as being pretty optimistic that they'd? I try, to, I, I try not. I try not to. I try to steer clear Seven. of predictions Got at it. all in these things. Um, so I didn't. I think I write it as a lot of shoulds, like they should be able to beat the San Diego State team because of X, Y, and Z. But I've also, I thought last year they should have been able to beat that Cincinnati team. Um, you know? The the one point you're making in, in your primers, which every one of these teams is, is kind of going through a transition. Yeah. <laughs> Hawaii with the new coach, San Diego State with the new coach, new schemes. And it's just not new coach, but new schemes. And you make a great point. New schemes coming off a, a lockdown. Yeah, it's going to um, be tough. Stanford still working out their their new scheme on offense. And they're kind of just going through a whole transition themselves, really. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know if I'd call it a transition for Arizona. What would you call that? Um, the doldrums, the period before their coach is fired. I don't know. There I don't know if there's, a, so, there's probably a long German word for it. <laughs> So what do you call yeah. it when you um, hire a coach who is so burnt out from his last job that he doesn't really get invigorated by his new job ever and is fired after three years? There's there's got to be a German word for that, right? <laughs> You're going to have to go there. I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, OK. So you think not doing the entire season, just doing the first six games, you think three and three. Yeah, I think three and three, but I mean, just to peek ahead at the rest of the season, uh, it doesn't get any easier. Like this, this first six games is the easy bit. Um, after that, okay, you got Colorado on the road, which, okay, maybe that's a win. 
Then it's Utah at home. Then it's UCLA at Oregon State, and Oregon State should beat them. Um, Washington State at UCLA, which will be interesting. USC, and then Cal. Um, the back half of the schedule is not easy. Um, the Two of the conference opponents, so they have three conference opponents in the first half. Two of them went 4-8 and eight last year. Um, the back half's combined record is you know, far better than that, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the one that could really, really just hurt would be the at Oregon state because they're going to lose that one. Oregon state is going to be better and they were pretty good last year. They were good last year. Um, and they're, they're going to beat UCLA. Um, that one's that one I would almost like put in the near Sherlock te- category. I think Utah at UCLA is a better chance for a UCLA win because um, Utah's rebuilding a little bit. Um, Tyler Huntley's gone. Um, Zach Moss is gone. A lot of that defense left. So there's there's a chance that Utah's in kind of a rebuilding phase that UCLA could take advantage of. But no, Oregon State they're on the upswing. They have to replace a quarterback, but um, they're they've got a really good offensive scheme and their defense was starting to come around last year. So how about Washington state? It's just hard to know. Um, yeah. if Rolovich hits the ground running, um, and his offense, you know, the run and shoot's not totally dissimilar from the air raid. Yeah. Um, he kind of has the personnel that would lend itself yeah, to it's, it. It's yeah. not bad. Um, they could be gangbusters offensively again. And then it's just a question of whether UCLA can keep up in a shootout by November 14th. Um, Maybe they will be able to. Uh, but, no, I don't think, like, those last four games, UCLA could lose each of those. I mean, they could lose to Oregon State, they could lose to Washington State, they could lose to USC, and they could lose to California. I think they'll be dogs in three of those. Um, and then it's just a question of whether Washington State is a pick or not. Yeah. And then probably a dog, Utah at the Rose Bowl, and then favored at Colorado. So probably really... Maybe favored for two of those, maybe? Yeah, I would say, uh, looking at the entire schedule, they're probably going to be favored New Mexico State. Um, probably favored against Hawaii, but by no more than a couple of points. Um, probably dogs at San Diego State. It'll depend on... Uh, I'm looking at, like, preseason, this is what it would be, uh, more than likely. Um, probably slight favorites against Stanford at home. Uh, favorites against you really, Wait, 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 wait. You really... I'm, I'm convinced if, uh, what's his name, the quarterback, Davis Mills, if he's healthy, and he's fine, they'll be slight favorites against Stanford at home. I mean, Stanford okay. just went four and eight. I'm talking about like preseason. What's Vegas going to have as the odds? Um, I would say something like a slight one two point favorite. Um, Arizona they'll be favored by like a touchdown. Uh, at ASU, ASU will be favored by like a touchdown to ten points. Um, at Colorado, honestly, I don't think UCLA would be, uh, much more than a point favorite, two point favorite huh. Utah at UCLA, probably the same thing. Um, maybe in Utah's favor, but more or less a pick them. And then the last four, I think it's Oregon state will be favored. Uh, maybe not by a full touchdown, but they'll be favored. Uh, USC will be favored. Cal will definitely be favored over UCLA. And then the only question for me is Washington state, whether they're going to get, um, credit for what Leach was able to do there um, and be favored in that game. But so we're talking what six ish games where they should be favored ish slight favorites, maybe 
Um, I think in aggregate, what it would end up being is like a five win uh, prediction. And they need to get to at least those six wins. You can't post three it's losing not, seasons in a so row. So it's not hard to find six wins. Um, if things break right, if things break right, I think they could. They can obviously sweep through non-conference. Like if things broke right, San Diego State, there's reason to think they're going to fall off. Um, and Hawaii, reason to believe that it'll take Graham a while to rebuild. So you could see a sweep through that. You could see a sweep through the first five games, really. Um, two home games to open up conference play, 5-0. and oh. That could happen. But then you're losing to ASU, I think, pretty much no matter what. Or in aggregate, you're going 5-1 and one in those top six, in those first six, even if ASU isn't the one. Um, and then the back six, I think best case scenario, it's 3-3. Three and three. Um, But that is a best case scenario, and I think that could happen. I think 8-4 and four would probably be my top end for this team mm. this year. Yeah, um, you're a little bit more optimistic than I am. Yeah, right I, now, I, now, right now, if we had like a bell or something, we should be ringing it. Because... Well, that that would be my like ninety five percent. Like okay. that's everything breaks right more or less, and they go eight and four. Um, and on the low, I think the low end is higher than it's been in previous years, just because the non conference is so easy. Like there's virtually no chance UCLA can lose to New Mexico State, um, but they could lose to Hawaii and San Diego State. Um, they could lose to a somewhat improved Stanford team. Um, they're not going to lose to Arizona. I really just can't see it. Um, but they could lose to a- ASU. So then you're talking two and four through the first six. And then they could lose to Colorado on the road. Um, they could lose to Utah at home. They could lose these final six, but let's say it's even one and five. I think the low end is, well, hell, maybe the low end is three and nine. I think they. I think you wrote somewhere, and I completely agree. Within the first six games, they have to go four and two, if yeah. they're going to have a a decent chance of getting those six wins. If they don't go four and two, that second half of the season, they're going to struggle to find three wins out of that. And that's even with Colorado on the schedule. Yeah, they're going to struggle to Colorado, find two. It's Colorado on the road. Um, you know, that's going into the mountains. That's historically not been easy. For the LA yeah. schools, especially, I'd say they need to go four and two. Yeah, and that's probably two and one in non-conference, and, and then, I mean, that's two and one, right? Yeah, two and one non-conference, two and one in those early three conference games. Yep. Yep. We'll see. So that's probably that has to be, you'd think, a win over Stanford and over Arizona. Yeah. Dang, it's so it's so funny. Back when we used to do this, and we'd get ourselves the nine and ten wins. Remember back? Remember oh, those I days? Do, I do remember that. Um, <laughs> I remember getting all the way to eleven or twelve. And it wasn't that difficult. Now it's it's just really a challenge to think of it, knowing what we know. Yeah, strange, well, strange how it all changes. Yeah, right? we've watched uh, two horrible seasons, um, yeah. and with with little reason to think it's going to suddenly improve. Um, it'd be one thing if you uh, switched the last two seasons and it went four and eight, but then the three and nine this past year included like a real surge at the end of the year, um, you know, with Wilton Spade throwing bombs or whatever. Um, but we got that surge at the end of first year, got us all optimistic for the second year. And then they, you know, pooped on the field again to start the year. I think it's all, like I said, it's all about the defense getting better. And I think that 
is all on Brian Norwood's shoulders. Yep. Not yep. to put that much pressure on the new guy, <laughs> but I mean, that's what he was called in to do here. And that's what needs to happen for this team to have a successful season this, uh, coming up in 2020. So there you go. Okay. You still there, Dave? Can you hear me? Now I can. Where'd you go? I, I went away, apparently. Was that your microphone or your brain? That was my microphone, but it was also my brain. It was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, okay. All right. Well, okay. you got anything else? You got anything else for me? No, I'm going to go. I'm going to go make a drink. All right. What are you drinking these days? I mean, honestly, what are you drinking? I know you say you throw in anything, but like, what's your drink? I'm not, I'm not really drinking anything. Um, but how is that possible? Just because you're a parent? Yes. <laughs> Entirely. Um, I'm a very yeah. tired parent. And when you add, um, a single beer to that mixture, it just leads to aggressive napping. I think I've told you this. I, I just didn't drink that much when my kids were young. And then by the time my son, who was the fourth kid, was a senior in high school, my wife and I were just saying, okay, you know, we're going to start drinking. And our son turned to us and literally said, have you guys always drank this much? And I just didn't know. <laughs> so you have something to look forward to. That's what that story is for. Yeah. When your kids get older, as they get older, you it's correlational where you start to drink more. And you need to drink more, too. Yeah. Yeah, to calm the nerves. Oh, you know that as they get older, the worry, the worries get just far more serious. Yep. They, they get behind a car. Oh, yeah. I'm excited get... for it. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, on that note. For Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruno Port Online, and we will talk to you again next time. Stay safe, guys.